Welcome to episode 6 of MMI Podcast, Mental Health During Crisis and Pandemics. Hope that you will enjoy this episode and watch this space as we provide you with more episodes to come. Also, do follow us on Facebook at Malaysian Medics International or our website malaysianmedics.org to know more of our interesting projects. Welcome to the sixth episode of our first ever MMI podcast series, Mental Health During Crises and Pandemics. I'm Siva, once again. You probably already know me from episode one and four. This time, I'll be co-hosting the episode with another new colleague, who is also one of the conveners of this episode, Joyce. Hey Joyce. Hi Siva, let's get this started. Well, today's episode is called Adding Insult to Injury. And we're going to pick up directly from where episode one, Alone, the Future Unknown, left off, in which we spoke about how anxiety and loneliness affects the mental health of the general population. Now, we'll continue by delving into the specific mental health implications of the pandemic on vulnerable groups of people who are unintentionally overlooked by a lot of us. For example, people with addiction problems, pre-existing psychiatric issues, people facing domestic violence, and the elderly population, which we really couldn't find time to cover in episode 1. Yes, and for that, we've invited Dr. Siva Kumar to shed some light on these topics to help us better understand the issues faced by these special groups and how we could perhaps lend a helping hand in terms of coping. So welcome to the show, Dr. Siva. Welcome. It's a privilege to have you here today. Thanks, Joyce. Yeah, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Thanks for inviting me to the show, actually, Sival and Joyce. Um, Well, uh, I'm an associate professor at uh, the Monash Clinical School in Johor Bahru, Uh, a consultant psychiatrist. I used to practice previously at Hospital Permai, uh, one of our very few uh, mental health institutions in Malaysia. Uh, Then I moved on to Hospital Sultana Amina, which is the general hospital. And uh, currently I teach at Monash, but I've got a private practice at Columbia Asia. Ah, thanks for sharing. You're welcome. So, Doctor, before we proceed, did you know that a few people actually requested for your presence on the podcast today? Okay, I'm surprised. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fan favorite, it seems. Alright, moving on. Earlier this week, I came across a podcast in which a U.S. epidemiologist compared the public health effects of the COVID-19 crisis to an onion. Can you wager a guess as to why though, Doctor? Well, well, my guess would be you think about it and it makes you cry. You don't know whether you're laughing or you're crying most probably or maybe it peels, you know, in, in slices. Ah, close enough. That was what I thought about as well. But what this epidemiologist said was that it's because the illness and death caused by the COVID-19 is the outer layer of the onion. So it's very obvious to us, right? Since it's extremely urgent, it demands attention, and it's very concerning. But when you peel the layer and you go in deeper and deeper, hidden underneath are the more complex and less visible issues. So this will only unfold over time, like uh, unemployment, recession, healthcare system overload. Yeah, and I think we can use the same principle 
to explain how we see mental health effects on the general population as the outer layers and the mental health effects of certain minority group generations and population as the inner layers of the onion. That's what I think. Yeah. But what do you think, Doctor? Well, I think you're right there because uh, what's happening now is uh, we are spending so much of time, effort, battling uh, the virus itself. And uh, we've just got to realize that, you know, there are deeper parts or deeper problems. My thoughts are that uh, these problems are going, are there to stay even when we have actually got hold and settled the virus problem. So these are going to continue. So it, we, we are actually looking at, uh, well, as you put it just now, Siva, the deeper parts of the onion, not looked at. People are not yeah. feeling it. Yeah. I think I really like this um analogy because it's relatable it's easy to understand and everyone can understand it even if you don't have that high high level of education but you can understand what the disease is happening yeah. what the disease is causing us well yeah the other thing actually see about it, if i if i might say you know if people are actually talking about uh, the thing is it's it's at this moment you're talking about help and uh, we actually don't know how to pace ourselves and and i think that's the big problem because when you talk about pacing yourself we know we are running a marathon here but the problem here is you know we can't pace because we don't know what marathon we are running whether we are running a half marathon whether we are running a full marathon or whether we are running an ironman marathon because we just don't know where the problems will stop so it's a huge problem and i think it's it's lots to talk about hmm yeah exactly so basically we don't know when the pandemic is going to end and so we don't know how much preparation to do it's like the war so yeah with that interesting onion analogy let's now start and begin by talking about a very sensitive yet crucial topic addiction problems namely alcohol and substance abuse disorder and even tobacco smoking if you may so doctor knowing that you specialize in managing people with addiction i guess there's no better person to talk to about this than you so in the news i heard that us citizens have been stockpiling alcohol in their houses mm-hmm. especially over these two months ever since the lockdown started yeah and um people in recovery are not having access to their normal support system as well yeah but i've not come across this news in malaysia yet So I think it's relevant for us to talk about it mm-hmm. although it hasn't been brought to light yet in the news. Yeah, sure. So what makes a person turn towards alcohol, smoking or other substances during social isolation or a crisis like now? Well, I think um one of the more common reasons is uh, alcohol has always been there as a part of entertainment. But here, especially during isolation, I think people use it a lot of people use it as a coping tool. To deal with your stress, uh, to a certain mm. extent, you know, it does reduce stress, but definitely, it's not a good coping tool. You find that, you know, when you look at uh, the past, uh, I'll quote the director of the National Abuse of Alcohol, uh, Alcohol, mm. the National Association of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism in the state, mm. Dr. George Coop. Now, what he said was, you know, historically, we know that whenever there is a pandemic whenever there are shutdowns whenever there's a problem you find that the rates of alcohol sales and alcohol abuse increases they saw the same thing in 
they saw it when Hurricane Katrina hit them in the US and they are seeing it now. Ah, okay. Um, is there any psychology or science behind it other than understanding that it is because of uh, the stress? Is there anything else that causes it? Yep, I think uh, studies which looked into it is um, alcohol is also used as a substitute for relationships. So, you know, in, in, in a normal day, you can actually go out and do things, do social events. But here, you know, you're at home and you're stuck at home. So sometimes alcohol is used as a substitute. Many a times when you're at home and you think a lot and uh, you have lots of issues. So alcohol and other substances are used to numb emotions. So there are multiple mm. ways where substances and alcohol are actually helping people or so they think at this moment of time. Hmm, I agree with you. Has there been any research done from previous pandemics or epidemics? Yeah, I think uh, that's where most of our information is from. But, you know, talking about the recent thing, you know, do you know that in the UK, since March this year, the alcohol sales actually rose by 22%? Uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, one in five actually say that they're drinking more during the pandemic. In the States, in US, the alcohol sales rose by at least 25% during the week ending 4th of April. So, mm. it's, it says that, you know, in a normal case, one might not have a drink. But, you know, because of that pandemic, people are actually trying to find more excuse to drink. Let's move to places closest to us, like what I think uh, I did, George, uh, I mean, Joyce and Siva, you were saying. Uh, we don't have much from, from Malaysia. Let's talk about Singapore. So some of my colleagues were actually giving me uh, info from Singapore. Uh, Singapore shut down uh, quite some time back and all their, virtual, all their bars and entertainment uh, venues were shut. But Singapore has actually started off something called as virtual bars. So mm. nightclubs like Zook, 1980, these are some clubs which actually live stream uh, a bar-like environment five times a week. And what they do is they allow viewers to purchase vouchers for redemption of actual drinks when the club reopens. So you pay first. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting concept. Uh, selling alcohol, you pay first and you drink later. So you can just imagine when things open up, you know, the amount of alcohol that's there for them to drink. And the amount of debt they will be in. Exactly. Exactly. So the psychology behind it is they want to really find it as a coping mechanism by going to party, um, by drinking. But since of uh, because of this COVID nineteen pandemic and there is a need for social distancing, so they can't. When they live stream, what exactly is uh, they going to benefit from it because they are not there physically? Is it the feel of the music that it gives or the 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 alcohol itself or the feel that I can cope with it later like how does that um, reconcile yeah I think you're partially correct it's it's not only the alcohol but what actually makes people dependent or addicted to a certain substance is also the effect of the alcohol and sometimes the environment so the environment plays a very important part so you find that especially when you drink, you know, for example, you're drinking in a club, a nightclub with the music and your friends around compared to drinking alone, 
changes the entire picture. So you find that people who are drinking in company that they enjoy drink more. Hmm. Hmm. So in line with what you just said about addiction, there's another term called withdrawal. Yeah. And I feel that um, people who have um, substance abuse disorder or alcohol dependence, they're actually struggling with both of these all the time, between mm-hmm. addiction and withdrawal. Yep. Is it right for me to say that addiction and withdrawal are actually interrelated and inextricable? Well, the term addiction is a widely used word. Uh, a more clinical word for that would be dependence. So you find mm. that uh, not everyone who uses a substance gets dependent. Now, what I mean by dependent is the analogy of a car without petrol. So a car needs petrol to function or to move. So that's how a man or a, a lady who is addicted to a certain substance needs right. that substance to function every day. Now that's dependence. So when you use the term addiction, it brings about lots of understanding. One is you are you have lost control over the the use of substances. You're using too often, too much. Uh, you are getting withdrawals when you stop. Going to show that your body has built a dependence onto the substance, you're starting to neglect your day-to-day functioning. And worst of all, your day-to-day or your important functioning has been grossly or significantly impaired. So that's basically addiction. Hmm. On the other hand, are there specific symptoms to withdrawal? Yep. Uh, well, it doesn't work for all drugs. Some do and some do not have. When you talk about withdrawal, uh, in simple words, you know, what's withdrawing? It's a substance that's withdrawing from your body. It's leaving your body. And when it leaves your body, it leaves you uneasy. And that's what we term as withdrawal symptoms. So they can be very simply divided into physical symptoms and psychological symptoms. So physical symptoms, for example, uh, when someone stops a certain substance, he may feel pain, he may feel aches, nausea, vomiting, um, feeling sleepy, feeling groggy, those kind of things. Whereas psychological withdrawal symptoms would mean thinking about the substance, having urges, about the substance. So those are easy division of uh, physical and psychological withdrawals. Okay, thanks for explaining the distinction between that because some people might not understand that. It was quite clear. So in terms of addiction, we go back to addiction. If you realize that um, someone is having dependence in the clinical term, or you or someone has dependence towards any form of alcohol or substance, I believe that it's time to seek help, right? Yep. So during this lockdown, if someone is newly addicted or they're having trouble managing their existing addiction, what can they do to help themselves? Yeah, that's a tricky question because, uh, you know, many a times people who who are addicted to a substance don't know that they're addicted until... Um, things start to deteriorate. But I think what 
could help them is for them to start listening to the feelings that motivate their substance use or drinking. I'll give you an example. Mm. If you're drinking to have a good time, to talk to friends or to cheer yourself up once in a while, well, I suppose that's probably okay. But if you're drinking to drown feelings of anxiety or depression or just to numb yourself, then I think that's going to be a problem because what's happening is you're using alcohol as a coping mechanism. And this group of people would tend to learn over a period of time that alcohol does help. But what they don't understand is it only helps for the short term. And once you wake up the next day, you're still having the same problem. So it doesn't solve anything in the long term. So, mm. Well, that's, that's, that's one. So we keep teaching people who are starting off or people who are newly addicted about looking into choices that they can make. So if they're using drinking to fix a problem or a moment, then I think that's wrong then they're supposed to teach them how to use other activities that can bring about that same coping mechanism. People who feel lonely, these are people who actually turn to drugs, you know. We teach them how to spend their time, how to get into a social conversation with friends. If you're feeling bored, many a times people get bored here. Teach them about how to put in activities. Getting creative, you know, like whipping up a meal, learning a new language or if you're really feeling down and all those doesn't work then of course it's time to call a therapist uh, nowadays i think during this lockdown many therapists have actually gone on to phone or video appointments mm. okay so basically what you're saying is that there is a way of identifying whether you have developed dependence at home by actually identifying what is the cause of you drinking alcohol yep. or taking drugs. Yeah. Early signs. Early signs of a future depend of a future addiction. That makes sense. Yeah. And recently I actually saw this uh, viral picture of a Chinese man who collapsed at the Indonesian airport after being intoxicated. So but what was that that incident? It provoked panic in the public because there is a possibility that this man might be infected by COVID-19. So no one actually came forward to help him. But um, thankfully, the, uh, the person was attended by the medical staff later on and um, he was tested negative for COVID-19. But as we see the public reaction in these kind of cases, there is actually a possible same public reaction also. We might see if it does happen in our community or in our local community today. If this person actually really needs help, has withdrawal symptoms, intoxicated, fell in public. So how can a first responder or a bystander help this person whilst maintaining social distancing? Well, that's going to be a bit difficult, I think, while maintaining social distancing. Um, someone who is unresponsive. Uh, well, I think that's that's the biggest risk and that's the biggest danger that we have, especially for the first-liners. They are basically at risk of contracting the disease. 
um, a person in intoxicated uh, intoxication or a person who is uh, uh, abusing drugs and who's actually uh, fallen down or collapsed unconscious basically needs immediate uh, help so you need to make sure that your lines are open you make you're going to make sure that breathing is there until you can actually get that person to a hospital to give something or to detox the person so that's going to be kind of difficult doing it with social distancing but i suppose that the best way is just like what most of our frontliners do is they get close you have to well do away with that social distancing to really help person but making sure that they are wearing the required ppes that's uh, expected hmm yeah i think that would be the best way as well because it's pretty tricky as well to go near a person but that person really needs help at that point of time yeah that's true so yeah the best way is to call from professional help by the phone as a first responder or bystander yep yeah just an interesting thought just from extending extending from what you just said would it be a common phenomenon where you know in malls they always put up a first aid kits or aed sets everywhere would there be a time where you would see ppe everywhere behind the glass i suppose the world is going to change i think you've got a point there uh, that's what people are actually getting themselves ready the world is going to change it's no longer going to be the same as before so as doctors and trainee doctors we are definitely going to go into the hospital differently compared to now ppe is going to be there for a couple i mean uh, some amount of time um the thought is or the belief around and especially among the medical professionals are this is not something that's going to settle within a month or two it's going to take years hmm absolutely okay so doctor proceeding here's a coincidence we're actually right in the middle of three consecutive awareness initiatives relevant to addiction the alcohol awareness month in the us was in april the world no tobacco day is coming up on 31st may mm-hmm. and the international day against drug abuse is on 26 june yeah it's supposed to be happy about this but Although these times were intended to celebrate awareness about being abstinent from alcohol and free of substance use, unfortunately, it's gonna be really, really hard this year to do that. Just as because of the reasons that you explained earlier. Yeah, that's true. And just now, you also mentioned that if a lock, even if the lockdown is lifted, gradually in phases, I believe that the effects of the lockdown on addiction and withdrawal are never gonna wear off that easily. So what are the challenges people in recovery from alcohol and substance abuse disorder might face during this COVID-19 crisis? Yeah. I think that's that's kind of tough. Especially people from the states and well most other places uh there are news that in in the states uh, uh the government is easing on law and restriction on alcohol which is actually not helping much. uh i think much of those steps are taken because it's it's very political bringing in business and other things now you do find a lot of people in recovery and these are the people who are most at risk because they've done a good job a great job in fact keeping clean 
And now, in isolation, they are faced with lots of stress. How does it come and what are the challenges? Well, one is coping mechanisms. When when we sit with a client and uh, teach them about relapse prevention, uh, especially using something called as cognitive behavioral methods, we teach them about coping mechanisms. That means how to avoid that next step that would end in a drink or him being intoxicated. But lots of that coping mechanisms are now lost because they are in the house and they can't go out. Like a simple example, a lot of people use sports for coping mechanisms. Whenever they get urges, whenever they feel the need to drink or the desire, they tend to go for a run. Now, you can't do that now. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah, correct. You know, a lot of people go for a badminton game. Now, you can't do that. Yes, me too. Yeah. Number two, you know, everyone is at home and many of people, many people have not gone to work and there's lots of time in hand. So, time is not good for a person in recovery because it opens up thoughts. Just like the saying goes, you know, um, a devil's workshop, you know, when your mind is empty, it becomes a devil's workshop. So, you find that they start thinking and when you start thinking, urges start coming in and you start thinking about uh, going back to drinks. That also decreases some amount of self-efficacy. You find that you're not going out, you're not doing things, you're sitting at home, that brings about lots of negative thoughts. So these are some of the challenges that people in recovery have to do because now they have to do recovery by themselves. They don't have that help from the therapist as much as they want to or friends in recovery. Another thing that people in recovery, especially alcohol and and other narcotics have is group meetings. So there used to be things like uh, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholic Anonymous. But these are all group meetings where you have a whole group of people and now during the COVID isolation period, you can't do that. And uh, they've lost this huge uh, coping skill or this coping mechanism. The groups used to do that for them. Mm, Okay. So would you say that because stigma around people in recovery was always present Mm -hmm. before the pandemic, would you say that it has increased during the lockdown right now? For example, stigma on the online platform. Well, stigma is always there to stay. Uh, during the lockdown, yeah, why not? I, I would agree if you say that it's actually gone up because um, uh, especially online, um, due to stigma, you find that this group of people have a lesser avenue to actually get help online. Mm. That's understandable. So just now you said that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go for group meetings. Yeah. What about uh, other alternatives that they could um, pursue during this lockdown? Well, in case of uh, a problem or a near relapse, I think they ha- they'll have to change strategies. They can't do things as they would do in a normal day-to-day thing. So maybe some of the things that they can actually do is uh, I think people in recovery need to reach out. So they need to reach out 
to family, to friends, and as much as they can to therapists. As I as I said earlier on, many of the therapists have actually gone online, and uh, you'd be able to get a therapist or someone to speak to at least online. Many a times, that's what people in recovery need. They need to talk to people to show them some evidence against what they plan to do. Number one. Uh, this group of people need to put in some structure in their day. What's happened during this lockdown is a lot of people have lost structure in life. Your day-to-day structure, getting up in the morning, getting to work, meeting friends, coming back. So that's totally lost. And that's something that's not going to help a person in recovery. So you've got to continue structure. You've got to con- continue an organized life. And of course, like what I said just now, they got to sit down and analyze their feelings. What's motivating them for drink? To, I mean, to go back to, to, to their drinking habits, you know? And if they find that it's, it's going to be drinking for the need to numb or to overcome or to, using, to use it as a coping mechanism, then they need to act appropriately. They need to look into non-drinking activities that can be done in the safety of their homes. Mm. I think there are just a few um, helpful methods as well to consider. Um, I was also just thinking about other types of uh, outreach and care for these kind of people. Um, before the NCO started, I'm sure there are addiction centers um, mm-hmm. carrying out um, this kind of care to reach out to these kind of people. But um, I'm pretty sure there has been some alterations or modifications done um, to operate due to these new social distancing rules. So, um, what do you think are the type of care that these uh, addiction centers now are carrying out um, in regards to this lockdown period? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, um, addiction centers used to have uh, lots of face-to-face sessions. But, uh, well, you can't do that now. Uh, and you're not allowed to do that. So, Many of the addiction centers have actually gone online. And amazingly, I mean, you can easily run groups online. Uh, We've heard of group meetings which are run on Zoom. We've heard of uh, personal one-to-one consultations that are run on Zoom. And sometimes you can also do it within a, a family session where you can actually open up a virtual room and counsel someone separately before you bring them back to the main hall. So, online consultation and teleconferencing has actually become so important nowadays and that's most probably something that's going to be there for a long time. Then how about people with opioid dependence uh, obtaining methadone or other opioid maintenance therapy medication during this period? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point because uh, opiate maintenance therapy is, is, is a must for people on, uh, who, who are already stabilised with an opiate dependence problem. Uh, amazingly, hospitals are still open and that's where the, first, uh, the frontliners are. So most of the medications that need a day-to-day uh, prescribing, what we call as direct observe therapy, uh, are still open. The clinics are still open. Patients which are stable, who who can be trusted to bring back supplies of methadone, 
have been given uh, supplies that can go on. But of course, a lot of uh, a change in policy has been put into this methadone clinics and uh, uh, they put in precautions as in uh, uh, hand sanitizing and distancing. Even if you're sitting down and waiting, it's always uh, distancing in terms of uh, uh, clients sitting and, 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 and lining up. Oh, I see. Um, doctor, I'd just like to ask one another question. Yeah. Uh, you said that there were virtual meetings by addiction centers, right? Yep. From what I see, doesn't that mean that if a person has a computer, they can actually go for more virtual meetings than face-to-face meetings? Wouldn't it be a good thing then? Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it would be a good thing, uh, but you have to understand that these meetings are, are very new. It's only come up because of COVID. Mm. So there are, there are advantages and disadvantages of virtual meetings. Well, the advantage is if you can't reach the meeting place or if you're living far, now those, those are some of the advantages. So you can still attend a meeting or in, in, in circumstances like this, you know, where you just can't run meetings or you're not allowed to, then of course it's an advantage. But you have to understand that some of the disadvantages is a face-to-face meeting brings about more, how would I say, more zest, more feelings, more emotions that sometimes online, uh, I mean, as much as you try, online conferencing will never bring. Mm, yes, definitely. And also for people who don't have technology in the house. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. So now let's just move on to um, the group of people who have pre-existing psychiatric illnesses. So uh, as I mentioned earlier in episode one, we spoke about the effects of anxiety and loneliness on the mental health of the general population. So talking about people who've been struggling with mental illnesses before the pandemic, obviously compared to the general population, this people are the ones who are going to see the impacts first because the pandemic is going to amplify and exacerbate their existing conditions. So what form of support system do these people have right now? And what support did they have before? Like the changes between the support system? Um, Well, I think let's start with uh, what they had before uh, and uh, what we are looking at now. you're 100% correct that uh, the most hit would be people with an existing mental illness. And um, the issue or the problem, the difference is that in, in, in the past, before or what we call as the pre-COVID era, um, they had the ability to actually go directly to hospitals whenever there was a problem or an issue or maybe early signs of relapse. I'm not saying that they don't have that now but the thing is many patients that I have spoken to fear getting into a general hospital especially waiting at the A&E with a whole group of other patients the fear of actually contracting uh, the virus. So that's just one huge thing and many of them would rather stay at home rather than go to a hospital. 
Number two is in the past. Uh, you you must understand that uh, isolation is actually something that's very strongly linked to depression, anxiety, uh, cognitive decline. Now the reason is because isolation, like it or not, it reduces the resilience factor. Factors like uh, self-worth, factors like sense of purpose and feeling valued. So, many a times when you are in isolation, you know, you don't have that feeling. A lot of them feel less self-worth. They feel that they are no purpose at all. So, isolation is actually a huge thing. Do you actually know that, you know, the lack of social connection can actually increase your health risk? As much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having an alcohol use disorder, that's how strong social connection is. No, I did not know that. But that's quite interesting. Yeah. You know, loneliness, and, and this has been published actually, loneliness and social isolation are actually twice as harmful to physical and mental health as obesity. Hmm. So that's what they don't have now because they are at home. There's a lot of isolation. There is a lot of social isolation that I would say. So, you know, in that sense, what you find is they've lost resilience. They have lost their options of coping strategies. Hmm. Okay. So in this case where they have lost their resilience and their coping strategies, is there anything that people around them can do for them? Yep. So you're asking about how can people support them. Yeah, yeah, that's true. See, what, what we are looking at now is not only... We're we looking at a whole range of people. We are not only looking at people who, are, who have been ill before with a pre-existing mental illness getting into a relapse. You're also seeing new group of people developing symptoms. And there is this third interesting group as we call as the worried well. So who are the worried well? These are people who are healthy, no problem at all. But they are worried about becoming ill and they tend to go take medication or to see a doctor. They get freaked out when they hear about things. Mm. So we're looking at three groups of people. So, how can we help? Uh, one is, of course, uh, the support. I think the support is very important in terms of uh, guidance uh, and uh, help in terms of uh, uh, showing them the right way. Now, many a times uh, you find that uh, things or structure in life has changed and that may be one of the reasons why people have actually relapsed. So helping people get back their structure in life, get helping people utilize their time would actually be something very good. Lots of people that we see nowadays get into an anxiety attack because of lack of information or getting wrong information. So, giving this group of people some amount of correct information about their disorder, about uh, the COVID uh, information, would actually help a lot. Now, 
consultations have, as I said, have all gone online. A lot of doctors or psychiatrists go on virtual or uh, telemedicine, which has actually been is being utilized to its full extent. So these are some of the things that we can actually help people. Hmm. Okay. So just now, doctor, you spoke to, spoke about um, uh, social isol the connection between social isolation and uh, depression and other mental illnesses, right? Mm-hmm. What about let's say someone has always been having suicidal ideation since the beginning, before the pandemic, yep. and then mm-hmm. the lockdown is um, started. What should people around them do to help them prevent these suicidal ideations? Or suicidal behaviors. Yeah, talking about suicide, um, it's nothing new. It's not going to be. It's not. It's not a new topic when you talk about epidemics because we we we've learned this from uh, uh, the previous SARS epidemic that we had. So you find that uh, suicide is actually a recognized concern. For example, uh, from the past, uh, when you looked at uh, the SARS epidemic a couple of years back. Uh, Hong Kong was associated with about 30% increase of suicide, and especially among the el- elder- elderly people. Mm. And um, this was basically due to increases in anxiety, panic, panic about the illness, panic about contracting the infection, and yes. just plain despair. You know, because they just don't know what to do, and that loss of livelihood. So. What are the reasons why why do people actually turn to suicide? One is of course uh, you know they have lost that self resilience, things that they always had. Um, just quoting some examples that uh, I see in practice, I met this one elderly gentleman who who basically came in with lots of anxiety symptoms and suicidal thoughts, thoughts of ending his life. Now the reason why he actually had this is he's never had it before, was because uh, he had a structure in life. He he was worried once in a while, but what he did was he had good coping mechanisms. He could go for his games, so he had this day-to-day structure. He used to get out, go to the kopitiam, talk to his friends. In the evenings, he'll go for a game of badminton, come back, and that sort of gave structure. Gave him that self resilience that he has. Mm. Uh, now all that broke down. The all that broke down when COVID came in, and he just didn't know what to do. Um, I I mean this is this is sad that I had another I I, I saw another young mother who who presented with uh, symptoms of uh, anxiety, extreme anxiety, plainly because. She's a new mother. She didn't know what to do uh, because when COVID came in, everything was closed. She was alone at home with the husband and the baby, and and she actually attempted, she attempted suicide, and that's very sad because people get very desperate and they just don't know what to do. So, what can people do? Identifying those symptoms are very important. So. Family members, people who are close to you, don't be scared. My advice is: don't be scared when you hear your loved ones or your friends talking about life, talking about not worth living. Talk to them. See whether 
suicidal ideations are there the fallacy of things is people get scared to people people are scared to talk about suicide in the fear that they might plant ideas and that's not true at all so my advice is do that once you do that and once you find that there are ideas there are thoughts about life worth not worth living then i suppose that these people need to talk to someone they need a proper assessment never downplay this kind of thoughts so they need to talk to someone you don't need to walk to see a psychiatrist a counselor would be good enough a psychologist would be good enough they would most probably benefit from some counseling many of these people don't need to be on treatment but they just need to talk about it they just need to discuss ways and methods of restructuring their life hmm so correct me if i'm wrong what you've been saying so far is that suicidal ideations are strongly linked to the distortion of or destruction of someone's daily structure yep someone's coping mechanism you see every one of us have got coping skills yeah and we use different things now if your coping skills is closely connected to social activities and outdoor activities then you had it because you know with this sudden change you need to relook at life again and you need to build your coping skills up again in that short period of time so that's quite a task in summary today we have had a deeper look at mental health amidst covid-19 especially on alcohol addiction and substance abuse We also learned that addiction is when we lose control over the use of substances with developed dependence and functional impairment. These behavioral tendencies are unhelpful, short-term coping mechanisms with the consequences of suffering from withdrawal symptoms. Also in this isolation period with which is um, strongly linked to depression and anxiety, These matters do reduce resilience factors while losing positive coping strategies like sports or social activities. So support is important and it is okay to talk about it. This is the end of part 1 of episode 6. Stay tuned for part 2 which will be coming out very soon.